Section two of Bits About Home Matters by Helen Jackson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section two The Inhumanities of Parents Needless Denials. Webster's Dictionary, which cannot be accused of any leaning towards sentimentalism, defines inhumanity as cruelty in action and cruelty as an act of a human being which inflicts unnecessary pain. The word inhumanity has an ugly sound, and many inhuman people are utterly and honestly unconscious of their own inhumanities. It is necessary, therefore, to entrench oneself behind some such bulwark as the above definitions afford before venturing the accusation that fathers and mothers are habitually guilty of inhuman conduct in inflicting unnecessary pain on their children by needless denials of their innocent wishes and impulses. Most men, and a great many women, would be astonished at being told that simple humanity requires them to gratify every wish, even the smallest, of their children, when the pain of having that wish denied is not made necessary, either for the child's own welfare, physical or mental, or by circumstances beyond the parent's control. The word necessary is a very authoritative one. Conscience, if left free, soon narrows down its boundaries. Inconvenience, hindrance, deprivation, self-denial, one or all, or even a great deal of all, to ourselves, cannot give us a shadow of right to say that the pain of the child's disappointment is necessary. Selfishness grasps at help from the hackneyed sayings that it is best for children to bear the yoke in their youth, the sooner they learn that they cannot have their own way, the better. It is a good discipline for them to practice self-denial, etc. But the yoke that they must bear, in spite of our lightening it all we can, is heavy enough. The instances in which it is, for good and sufficient reasons, impossible for them to have their own way, are quite numerous enough to ensure their learning the lesson very early. And as for the discipline of self-denial, God bless their dear patient souls, if men and women brought to bear on the thwartings and vexations of their daily lives and their relations with each other, one hundredth part of the sweet acquiescence and brave endurance which average children show under the average management of average parents, this world would be a much pleasanter place to live in than it is. Let any conscientious and tender mother, who perhaps reads these words with tears half of resentment, half of grief in her eyes, keep for three days an exact record of the little requests which she refuses from the baby of five, who begged to stand on a chair and look out of the window, and was hastily told, no, it would hurt the chair, when one minute would have been enough time to lay a folded newspaper over the upholstery, and another minute enough to explain to him, with a kiss and a hug, that that was to save his spoiling mamma's nice chair with his boots, and the two minutes together would probably have made sure that another time the dear little fellow would look out for a paper himself when he wished to climb up to the window. From this baby up to the pretty girl of twelve, who, with as distinct a perception of the becoming as her mother had before her, went to school unhappy because she was compelled to wear the blue necktie instead of the scarlet one, and surely for no especial reason. 
At the end of the three days, an honest examination of the record would show that full half of these small denials, all of which had involved pain, and some of which had brought contest and punishment, had been needless, had been hastily made, and made usually on account of the slight interruption or inconvenience which would result from yielding to the request. I am very much mistaken if the honest keeping and honest study of such a three days record would not wholly change the atmosphere in many a house to what it ought to be and bring almost constant sunshine and bliss where now too often a storm and misery with some parents although they are neither harsh nor hard in manner nor yet unloving in nature the habitual first impulse seems to be to refuse they appear to have a singular obtuseness to the fact that it is or can be of any consequence to a child whether it does or does not do the thing it desires often the refusal is withdrawn on the first symptom of grief or disappointment on the child's part a thing which is fatal to all real control of a child and almost as unkind as the first unnecessary denial perhaps even more so as it involves double and treble pains in future instances where there cannot and must not be any giving way to entreaties. It is doubtless this lack of perception, akin, one would think, to colour-blindness, which is at the bottom of this great and common inhumanity among kind and intelligent fathers and mothers, an inhumanity so common that it may almost be said to be universal so common that while we are obliged to look on and see our dearest friends guilty of it we find it next to impossible to make them understand what we mean when we make outcry over some of its glaring instances you my dearest of friends or rather you who would be but for this one point of hopeless contention between us do you remember a certain warm morning last august of which i told you then you had not heard the last here it is again Perhaps in print I can make it look blacker to you than I could then. Part of it I saw, part of it you unwillingly confessed to me, and part of it little blue eyes told me herself. It was one of those ineffable mornings when a thrill of delight and expectancy fills the air. One felt that every appointment of the day must be unlike those of the other days, must be festive, must help on the white day for which all things looked already. I remember how like the morning itself you looked as you stood in the doorway, in a fresh white muslin dress with lavender ribbons. I said, oh, extravagance for breakfast. I know, you said, but the day was so enchanting, I could not make up my mind to wear anything that had been worn before. Here an uproar from the nursery broke out, and we both ran from the spot. There stood little blue eyes in a storm of temper, with one small foot on a crumpled mass of pink cambric on the floor. A nurse, who was also very red and angry, explained that Miss would not have on her pink frock because it was not quite clean. It's all dirty, Mamma, and I don't want to put it on. You've got a nice white dress. Why can't I? You are in the main a kind mother, and you do not like to give little blue eyes pain. So you knelt down beside her and told her that she must be a good girl and have on the gown Mary had said, but that she should have on a pretty white apron which would hide the spots. And Blue Eyes, being only six years old and of a loving, generous nature, 
dried her tears, accepted the very questionable expedient, tried to forget the spots, and in a few moments came out of the piazza, chirping like a little bird. By this time the rare quality of the morning had stolen like wine into our brains, and you exclaimed, "'We will have breakfast out here under the vines. How George will like it!' And in another instant you were flitting back and forth, helping the rather ungracious Bridget move out the breakfast table with its tempting array. "'Oh, Mamma, Mamma! cried Blue Eyes. "'Can't I have my little tea set on a little table beside your big table? Oh, let me, let me!' and she fairly quivered with excitement. You hesitated. How I watched you. But it was a little too late. Bridget was already rather cross. The tea set was packed in a box and set on a high shelf. No, dear, there's not time, and we must not make Bridget any more trouble. But, seeing the tears coming again, you shall have some real tea in Papa's big gilt cup, and another time you shall have your tea set when we have breakfast out here again. As I said before, you are a kind mother, and you made the denial as easy to be borne as you could, and Blue Eyes was again pacified, not satisfied, only bravely making the best of it. And so we had our breakfast, a breakfast to be remembered too. But as for the other time which you had promised to Blue Eyes, how well I knew that not many times a year did such mornings and breakfasts come, and that it was well she should forget all about it. After breakfast, you remember how we lingered, George suddenly started up, saying, How hard it is to go to town. I say, girls, walk down to the station with me, both of you. And me too, me too, Papa, said Blue Eyes. You did not hear her, but I did, and she had flown for her hat. At the door we found her, saying again, Me too, Mamma. Then you remembered her boots. Oh, my darling, you said, kissing her for you are a kind mother. You cannot go in those nice boots. The dew will spoil them, and it's not worth while to change them. We shall be back in a few minutes. A storm of tears would have burst out in an instant at this third disappointment, if I had not sat down on the doorstep and, taking her in my lap, whispered that Auntie was going to stay too. Oh, put the child down and come along, called the great, strong, uncomprehending man, blue-eyed dear papa. Pussy won't mind. Be a good girl, Pussy. I'll bring you a red balloon tonight. You were both very kind, you and George, and you both loved little blue eyes dearly. No, I won't come. I believe my boots are too thin, said I, and for the equivocation there was in my reply, I am sure of being forgiven. You both turned back twice to look at the child and kissed your hands to her, and I wondered if you did not see in her face what I did real grief and patient endurance. Even the king of the Golden River did not rouse her. She did not want a story. She did not want me. She did not want a red balloon at night. She wanted to walk between you to the station with her little hands in yours. God grant the day may not come when you will be heartbroken because you can never lead her any more. She asked me some questions while you were gone, which you remember I repeated to you. She asked me if I did not hate nice new shoes, and why little girls could not put on the dresses they liked best, and if Mamma did not look beautiful in that pretty white dress, and said that if she could only have had her own tea set at breakfast, she would have let me have my coffee in one of her cups. Gradually she grew happier, and began to tell me about her great wax doll, which had eyes that could shut, 
which was kept in a trunk because she was too little, Mamma said, to play very much with it now. But she guessed Mamma would let her have it today. Did I not think so? Alas, I did, and I said so. In fact, I felt sure that it was the very thing you would be certain to do to sweeten the day which had begun so sadly for poor little blue eyes. It seemed very long to her before you came back, and she was on the point of asking for her dolly as soon as you appeared. But I whispered to her to wait till you were rested. After a few minutes I took her up to your room, that lovely room with the bay window to the east. There you sat in your white dress, surrounded with gay worsteds, and looking like a carnival of hummingbirds. Oh, how beautiful! I exclaimed in involuntary admiration. What are you doing? You said that you were going to make an afghan, and that the morning was so enchanting you could not bear the thought of touching your mending, but were going to luxuriate in the worsteds. Some time passed in sorting the colours and deciding on the contrasts, and I forgot all about the doll. Not so little blue eyes. I remembered afterward how patiently she stood still, waiting and waiting for a gap between our words, that she need not break the law against interrupting with her eager. Please, Mamma, let me have my wax dolly to play with this morning. I'll sit right here on the floor by you and Auntie and not hurt her one bit. Oh, please do, Mamma. You mean always to be a kind mother, and you spoke as gently and lovingly as it is possible to speak when you replied. Oh, pussy, Mamma is too busy to get it. She can't get up now. You can play with your blocks and with your other dollies just as well. That's a good little girl. Probably, if blue eyes had gone on imploring, you would have laid your worsteds down and given her the dolly, for you love her dearly and never mean to make her unhappy. But neither you nor I were prepared for what followed. You're a naughty, ugly, hateful mamma. You never let me do anything, and I wish you were dead. With such a burst of screaming and tears that we were both frightened. You looked as well you might, heartbroken at such words from your only child. You took her away, and when you came back you cried and said you had whipped her severely, and you did not know what you should do with the child of such a frightful temper. Such an outburst as that, just because I told her in the gentlest way possible that she could not have a plaything. It is terrible. Then I said some words to you which you thought were unjust. I asked you in what condition your own nerves would have been by ten o'clock that morning if your husband, who had in one view a much better right to thwart your harmless desires than you had to thwart your child's, since you, in the full understanding of maturity, gave yourself into his hands, had, instead of admiring your pretty white dress, told you to be more prudent and not put it on, had told you it would be nonsense to have breakfast out on the piazza, and that he could not wait for you to walk to the station with him. You said that the cases were not at all parallel, and I replied hotly that that was very true, for those matters would have been to you only the comparative trifles of one short day, and would have made you only a little cross and uncomfortable whereas to little blue eyes they were the all-absorbing desires of the hour, which, to a child in trouble, always looks as if it could never come to an end and would never be followed by anything better. Blue eyes cried herself to sleep and slept heavily till late in the afternoon. When her father came home, you said that she must not have the red balloon because she had been such a naughty girl. I have wondered many times since why she did not cry again or look grieved when you said that and laid the balloon away. After eleven o'clock at night I went to look at her 
and found her sobbing in her sleep and tossing about. I groaned as I thought, This is only one day, and there are three hundred and sixty-five in a year. But I never recall the distorted face of that poor child, as in her fearful passion she told you she wished you were dead, without also remembering that even the gentle Christ said of him who should offend one of these little ones, it would better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. End of section 2